Oh, it was a busy old day on the radio and plenty to hear. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. This time last year, a video went around to me asleep at the side of a train tracks and like, I was on a bender for two months and in the middle of that two months, I had 10 days in bed and then I went drinking again and drugs obviously and another five days in bed. Very interesting. Um telegram operator in Khmer who sent a message to Valencia that then went on to the US to, to let them know in the US the 1916 rising was happening. Get a message to John Devoy and, and the message was coded so what was sent was mother's operation was successful. Wow. He said a line that will stay with me forever. He said this, well, now we better go and speak to mum. Oh my God, that's the queen of our nation, the monarch. And to start, on Morning Ireland, hot weather on the way. Gavin Jennings was talking to Dr Dermot Quinlan about keeping safe from the sun. As we heard, Met Erin has issued a high temperature advisory as Ireland is set to experience a hot spell from Sunday into early next week. The forecaster has said that daytime temperatures will widely reach the high 20s, possibly exceeding 30 degrees Celsius in some locations. It's also added that temperatures will remain uncomfortably warm overnight too. Dr Dermot Quinlan is Medical Director at the Irish College of General Practitioners. He's a GP GP in Glanmire in Cork. Dr Quinlan, good morning. Um, Not quite as hot as we heard about in Spain and Portugal yesterday, but hotter than is usual here. What risks does that pose to people and, and who in particular? Good morning, Gavin. I think the, the warm weather and sunny weather is, is really welcome for, for people, particularly after the long, hard COVID people have endured. I suppose the risks really are, are several, really, and obviously sunburn is first and foremost, and I'll address that in a moment. But And also ultraviolet light damages our skins and causes wrinkles. It damages the elastic tissue and skin, causing wrinkles. But long term, it has a risk of skin cancer, malignant melanoma and other cancers. Um, the, the people who are at risk, really, as everyone is at risk, but among the, our population, it's particularly those who have fair or red hair, blue green eyes, and uh, fair skin. But the really high risk groups really are the extremes of age, babies and young children, and older people with other chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Um, and I suppose the important thing for people to realise is that you know cloud cover doesn't prevent uh, ultraviolet uh, radiation penetrating the and damaging our skin and we get a lot of reflected light from shiny surfaces like water sand on beaches grass and tiled pools around so you know we are all at risk and i thought we all need to be careful so what can people do to cope with particularly high temperatures over the next few days the, the australians have a really good approach because they have a massive experience in, in managing uh, sun exposure and high temperatures and they have a very simple uh, mnemonic it's, it's slip slap slop seek shade and sunglasses and it's really slip on a shirt and ideally a long sleeve shirt um, to protect the forearms slap on a hat and ideally a broad brimmed hat slap on the sunscreen and personally i use factor 50 all the time as my only sun cream um, and when people are applying that really it's ideally we waterproof we apply it frequently and think of areas that you might not otherwise think of. it's really sore if people get sunburn on the, on the back of their feet uh, face neck um, and uh, apply the sunscreen regularly and then seek shade particularly between 11 and 3 because that's the time of most intense uh, sunlight and uh, then wearing wraparound sunglasses then if people do get sunburn really a cool shower talk to their chemist about uh, creams and maybe some paracetamol for relief of pain and uh, avoiding sun exposure for several days afterwards because the skin is especially sensitive after that in your view, is it safe to go ahead with, for example, outdoor summer camps for children if, if temperatures exceed 30 degrees next week? 
I, I think it is safe, but the organisers, I'm sure, will take appropriate precautions and have lots of water breaks and ensure that the children are well protected against the sun and, you know, take rest periods, ideally in areas of shade. It's being forecast that temperatures will remain relatively high at night time and so people's bodies won't get the chance to cool down by very much. What risks does that present? I suppose heat, heat exhaustion is, is, is an issue and much more so in continental Europe where the temperatures are much higher. In Ireland, generally, the temperatures will drop overnight, but heat exhaustion really is due to increased body temperature and people uh, can feel nauseated and sweating, uh, headaches and feeling lightheaded. And that's most commonly a symptom that they're dehydrated. So it's a matter of taking rest in a cool, shaded area and drinking lots of fluid. Occasionally, people get heat stroke, which is where the body temperature goes up, and then they get those symptoms uh, in a more severe form with vomiting and confusion and feeling very unwell. And again, in that case, you know, it's a matter of cool, shaded area, lots of fluid, and then seeking medical aid. Dr. Dermot Quinlan from Morning Ireland. Then later, Claire Byrne was talking to climate change scientist John Sweeney. We're looking at some very high temperatures in the days ahead. Just take us through, firstly, what's causing that. Good morning, Claire. Well, we're looking at um, probably temperatures, as you said, above 30 degrees um, on Tuesday um, of of the coming week in Ireland. And that really pales into insignificance with what we're actually experiencing at the moment further south in Europe. Um, We're looking at temperatures consistently above 40 degrees over much of Spain and Portugal. What's causing it is essentially uh, a situation where our anticyclone, uh, which normally exists over the Azores, is drifting, or a large part of it drifting towards the east and passing over us. And at the moment, it's still bringing air from the Atlantic, so we're having pleasant weather, but not really awfully hot weather. But as it moves further to the east, it begins to draw in air from further south and continental Europe, even as far away as the, the Sahara. So we're going to see that air mass shift occurring over the next couple of days. It's going to be powered as well by a low-pressure system over the Atlantic, which is the engine going to be driving that air northwards. So we're going to get a glancing blow, if you like, from that Spanish plume that's currently moving north across Europe. And that will bring us a couple of days of really hot weather. But uh, as I say, uh, nothing like what is being experienced at the moment further south in Europe. And we'll come to that in a moment. It may be a glancing blow, but there will be health implications for some people here because of those high temperatures, John? Yes, there will. And we know that uh, in Ireland, for example, a lot of people die in winter from the cold. And it's not often quite so much publicised that when temperatures get higher in the summer, we also notice a spike in mortality as well. I was involved many years ago with a study looking at um, some heat waves, historic heat waves in Ireland. We looked at five and we found around 300 excess deaths occurred on those five heat waves. Okay. They were people who were vulnerable. They were people who were compromised. Um, but it does indicate that we're not acclimatised in Ireland to heat, um, even as well as southern Europeans are, if you like. When you're looking at Spain and Portugal and France, how vulnerable are those areas to climate change? Well, the whole Mediterranean zone is one of the great hotspots for climate change because it's really on the edge, if you like, of the the Sahara Desert. And as the world's climate belts begin to move north with global warming, it renders those areas almost to be desiccated in terms of reduced rainfall, especially in winter. So we're seeing, for example, the third heat wave of the summer in Spain. Um, and, and going back as far as May, they never had a May uh, like this in 50 years. 
So those kind of areas are vulnerable. And what it effects it has, of course, are it begins to increase electricity demand. It begins to, as, in, as is happening in France today, reduce the ability of cooling waters for things like nuclear power stations or things like hydroelectricity generation. And it's all part and parcel of what we're seeing around the world in terms of extreme events. The Mediterranean is, if you like, a microcosm of what we're likely to see in other parts of the world as well. And you can see how Northern Europe, including Ireland, will become very attractive for people to come and and live in, live in because we'll, we'll see, as has been predicted, climate migration. Yes, I think we're, we're, we're beginning to see even some of that occurring um, around the world at the moment. Um, there is a background to some of the conflicts that we see around the world in terms of contestation for resources, especially water resources. We've seen that in the Sahel, we've seen it in Darfur, we've seen a bit of a background to it as well in Syria. So I think that's going to produce people moving uh, and displacement on a grand scale in a way we haven't seen before. And, of course, you may say to yourself, well, is this natural, uh, these events occurring? And, and you know, I, I, w- I would have, if you'd been asking me the question five years ago, say I'd have been very reluctant to say climate change was causing many of these extreme events to occur. But now we know from advances in climate science that we can run our climate models not once, but several hundred times and run them with CO2 at pre-industrial levels with CO2 at current levels and say, how often do we get a heat wave like we're seeing in France and Spain and Portugal at the moment uh, under pre-industrial conditions by comparison to today? And the figures that come back are really alarming because it tells us that for a very similar heat wave three years ago, uh, the probability of that occurring and thus the probability of what we're seeing today occurring is enhanced by between 10 and 100 times. So the fingerprint of climate change is is really now becoming the dominant driver of extreme events. And we're going to have to live with this uh, for the foreseeable future. We're going to see more severe events. We're going to see more frequent events. And it's going to be a high price we're going to pay for climate change. John Sweeney talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. And in the afternoon, climate was also a talking point on Liveline with Katie Hannan. I know that everyone has been uh, looking at the weather forecast. It looks like things are going to get hot, hot, hot here next week. They are hot, hot, hot uh, in continental Europe at the moment, uh, particularly in the western side, particularly around Spain and Portugal. And uh, things got very hairy in uh, parts of Portugal yesterday with wildfires threatening uh, people's holiday homes and particularly in a part of Portugal where a lot of Irish people are holidaying at the moment. Uh, Rebecca, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Katie. You're down in Quinta de Lago. I am. So we're um, in a place called Dunas Doradas, which is in between Quinta de Lago and Valdelobo. Right. And, OK, tell us what happened yesterday. It was a bit of a crazy day. So my parents live over here and I'm only visiting. Um, we got a call yesterday morning from friends in Paneras Altos, which is a golf resort about four kilometres from us to say there was a fire there and could they come up to our house for, for safety? And they did. And we were we thought we were fine here, but the fire started travelling and we got a phone call then from my dad at about midday to say to, to leave the house that it was only about a kilometre and a half away from the house. So we went down to Val de Lobo and we, we brought some tourists with us, some Irish people, it was about 40 of us, and then we had to evacuate from there. Um, when, you say, we went, sorry, so when you say there was about 40 of you, you mean that you went like on in a, 
in a an entourage like you were all traveling in a, in a convoy. convoy yeah so there was a few people that I'd met over here last year that I knew were from Dublin and um, they had their, their family here so we're just trying to make sure people did a lot of young kids and just to make sure that people knew where to go because they were the GNR who are the Garvey over here they were blocking all the roads um, and I'm just trying to get people out who were the young children to make sure everybody was safe so and was there was there at, like was it kind of panicky or what was the atmosphere like when you're getting people together I, I, I guess because there were so many children you're 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 trying to stay calm but the smoke was pretty bad around our area so it, it, you know, it's more, we, we knew where the fire was and, and we couldn't see the flames from, from our villas um, yet at that stage, but the smoke was really, really heavy. So it was just trying to get down to fresh air. So we headed down towards the beach area. Um, but then we were sent from there and we, we, we drove them the back roads to Quatera and that's when like the flames were all alongside us we were driving and they must have been like 50 foot high. So that was that was pretty scary. Oh my God, along the side, uh, the road that you were driving along, there was 50 foot yeah. flames on either side? Yeah, it was on the right hand side. So we were driving, it's, it's the Traval area. So wow. um, kind of the back of, of Valdeloba going to Quatera and um, the fire kind of came, as I said, down from Quintalago um, and then kind of all the way down the main road into through Dunas, through Valdeloba and just kept on going. Um, so even when we were in Quatera, which is you know, quite a distance away, all the helicopters were still there collecting water because the fire had come behind Quatera to Villa Sal, so and it just kept spreading all the way to Villa Mora. Um, but today is a lot brighter here now today, and, and while the helicopters are still going around, um, it seems it's just a bit of smouldering happening, um, but there's, as far as I know, there's no major fire outbreaks um, today. My God, well, you, I mean, it must have been quite a scary. I'm sure when you're doing it, you're just doing it, but afterwards, when you're thinking about what might have happened... Yeah, you, you have it in one. So um, I was pretty calm yesterday, and um, but it was kind of last night when I was putting my other 10-year-old, like putting him to bed. It's been, you know, and he was talking about the day that he had had, and you're trying to keep up beats for all the kids, but he did see the flames and um, obviously was aware of, of, of the smoke and knew what was happening. So he was kind of talking me through his, his day, and, and that's when it really kind of hit home. But um, thankfully today, like, we're all a little bit chesty today from all the smoke, but... Um, you know, everybody I know over here is safe and well and the firefighters were amazing and everybody really kind of pulled together and, yeah. and even some of the local restaurants, all the staff were out dousing flames. Like, you know, people really just rode in. That's Rebecca on the live line with Katie Hannon. And on Morning Ireland, the lack of accommodation for Ukrainians fleeing the war. As we heard in the bulletin, there are no spaces available this morning in state-provided accommodation for people fleeing the war in Ukraine and other asylum seekers. The Department of Children says that anyone arriving into the country will have to stay in Dublin Airport if they don't have alternative accommodation. Limo Dwyer is Secretary General of the Irish Red Cross. We can talk to him now. Uh, good morning, Limo Dwyer. Good morning. What's your understanding of, of what's happened? Well, I think what's happened is that the influx of uh, people from Ukraine has suddenly increased. Um, I I think it had levelled out and now it has increased. And then uh, to compound the the accommodation matter, um, additional refugees have come from other countries seeking international protection. In fact, there's um, ultimately uh, twice the number that have come before from uh, other countries. And I suspect that has to do with what's going on, I think, uh, in in Britain with the Rwanda uh, solution, as they describe it. 
um, and that has certainly compounded the matter for the for the government. So that people are coming to Ireland instead of coming to Britain. Yes, I think that is part of it. That, that at one level, certainly for the for people seeking international protection, there are most certainly more people coming to Ireland seeking that protection um, and seeking refuge here. And then on top of that, obviously, the, the numbers uh, coming from Ukraine because of the worsening situation there in parts of Ukraine uh, is, mm-hmm. is, is in fact understandable because people know that, that they will get a welcome here. And then to be fair, they are getting a welcome. But there's no doubt that the accommodation has come under very serious pressure. You were among a number of organisations briefed by the Department of Children yesterday. What, what were you told? Um, we're told that the, the City West, which I suppose has been taking in so many people over the last number of months or weeks, uh, was now full. And on that basis, they were going to have to provide some additional tented accommodation within that facility. And obviously, they're going to have to activate the other plan, which is uh, the the tented village, for want of a better word, in Gorbanstown. And I know the army have uh, been planning that with the government for the last number of months. In a statement from the Department of Children, they say over the past number of weeks, there's been a very significant increase in the number of people seeking access to the International Protection Service, as you mentioned. And this is causing a severe shortage of available accommodation for both people arriving from Ukraine and international protection applicants. This is also causing overcrowding in the City West Transit Hub. Incoming arrivals overnight will remain in Dublin Airport if they don't have an alternative source of accommodation. Government is working intensely to put alternative arrangements in place with immediate effect. The Taoiseach is meeting with relevant ministers uh, today, Thursday, to discuss the situation and review the current policies and practices. Um, Is it your understanding that there are people staying at the airport now? Yes, it is. Yeah, that that is, and um, that's certainly what we were told yesterday. Uh, yesterday evening, and um, so I think that is a reality. I, I think that probably will change in in a couple of days when the uh, the Gormanstown facility is set up properly. Um, uh, equally, I think that uh, the government were asking um, a number of other NGOs to come on board and to help with pledged accommodation. Um, people have agreed to do that to, en- to enable people to, to move into pledged accommodation as well, because that is happening every day. People are moving into pledged accommodation. So it's a combination of approaches, I think, that that's going to take place over the next number of weeks. And when we say people are staying at the airport, where? Well, um, to be honest, I don't know, uh, but um, I suspect that will be on uh, camp beds uh, or in chairs until there is a facility ready for them. And we would know we have our members uh, of the Red Cross at the various ports and airports. And they had they had noted, number one, that more people were arriving and uh, they have come across people who have had to stay in uh, in seated accommodation uh, overnight while accommodation is being sourced or while transport is being sourced to take people from Shannon or Cork generally up to City West. And, and that's that's what that's okay. what's the, the concern really with City West is that it was the core hub and that when people got to City West, there was normally accommodation. And then from there, people were able to move to some accommodation outside of City West. Liam O'Dwyer talking to Gavin Jennings. Then later, Anya Lawler spoke to Margarita Kalinchenko a volunteer working with Ukrainians coming to Ireland. And we've been hearing about the crisis in refugee accommodation this morning with newly arrived refugees stuck at Dublin Airport, City West full 
and plans being made for emergency tented accommodation. In the past few minutes, the Dublin Airport Authority issued a statement that they have made the old central terminal building at Dublin Airport available to the Department of Children to help them facilitate the arrival of Ukrainian nationals into Ireland. And DAA says any and all services uh, being offered within the old terminal building uh, are being looked after by the Department of Children. Margarita Kalinichenko from Ukrainian Action, good morning to you. Good morning. Talk to us about the refugees, the groups you know of, who are stuck at Dublin Airport. Uh, yeah, so we are doing, like, uh, for four months now, we're co- uh, we helping uh, to collect people from heavily attacked region and bring them to Ireland. Yesterday, we had two, two groups of 25 people. One of them come, uh, came from Poland, another from Estonia. Um, from what I know, um, yeah, they were waiting for four hours at the airport to be brought to City West. And um, when they come to City West, it was full and they were denied to come. So they just sent them to uh, old terminal. Um, I was in touch with, with both groups yesterday. Uh, to be honest, they are very grateful t- for the place to be quiet at the moment. And they are not very like demanding the something. They are very grateful for what they have. Uh, but yeah, they were slept in the bare floor yesterday. Um, they have some some uh, inflated mattresses inside, but most of the people uh, we have like one hundred fifty around one hundred fifty women with kids there at the moment. So they slept in the bare floor. Okay, so you're talking to us about um, two particular groups of about uh, fifty people, but overall yeah. there's about two hundred and fifty people. Is that right? Uh, yeah, from what I hear. Who who had to stay at the old terminal build, building at Dublin Airport. And while there were air, air, air mattresses and sleeping bags, uh, there were people sleeping on the floor. That's your understanding. Is that right? Yeah, I received a couple of photos yesterday confirming that they're sleeping on a bare floor. So what does that mean for other groups of Ukrainian refugees you would be hoping to help arrive here in Ireland? We have two more groups arriving this month. Um, uh, yesterday, we just informed everyone the situation is like this. And to be honest, it's people who need to accept the decision. They have all the options in front of them and they need to decide where, where is it better to go. From what I hear, uh, the situation can be the similar at the moment in Poland or in Germany. So, yeah, just people, it's their decision. They need to decide what to do next. So you're saying, because I mean, there's been a huge number of uh, Ukrainian refugees have gone to Poland, hasn't there? Um, so mm-hmm. are you saying the situation is, is similarly difficult for refugees seeking um, asylum there that, the, you know, again, they may be sleeping on bare floors. There isn't the accommodation available. From what I hear, yeah, it can be the similar there. But anyway, yeah, for what we're doing, we just inform people that, listen, guys, at the moment we have a crisis with accommodation here, you you, you, you should expect that if you come in Ireland, you can stay for a couple of days in the bare floor. It's just what we have. If you want to continue, if you want to go there anyway. So this is the layout. You need to decide. Margarita Kalinchenko talking to Anya Lawler from Morning Ireland. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Scoops and the BBC's most shocking interviews. Like this 2019 one with Prince Andrew of Great Britain. There's a slight problem with 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 with, with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a 
peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat, um, or I didn't sweat at the time, and that was, oh, actually, yes, I didn't sweat at the time, because I um, ha had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at, uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. On that particular day that, that, that um, uh, we now understand is the date, which is the 10th of March, uh, I was at home, uh, I was with the children, I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a Pizza Express in Woking. Going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. A very unusual thing for me to do. I've never been, I've only been through Woking a couple of times um, and I remember it weirdly distinctly. But as soon as somebody reminded me of it, I went, oh yes, I remember that. Prince Andrew being interviewed by Emily Maitlis. So author of Scoops, Sam McAllister, spoke to Claire about the setup of the interview. Now the interview was described as a plane crashing into an oil tanker causing a tsunami and triggering a nuclear explosion. But how and why did such a prominent member of the royal family agree to do an interview in the first place? Well, they say persistence pays off. A new book outlines just what went into securing quite possibly the most high profile interview since Princess Diana did uh, her draw dropping interview back in 1995. The former Newsnight producer and author of this new book, Scoops, is Sam McAllister. And Sam joins me now to discuss how she secured that interview. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Kai. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. I hear that you've just had some news. Yes, I'm afraid you are the first people to receive this news. And the news is that Scoop has been commissioned to be made into a film uh, with Scoop. The rumoured is that uh, Hugh Grant is one of the people that have been approached. So literally, that has just hit Twitter. So apologies if I sound a little bit overexcited. As you can imagine, that is quite a whirlwind piece of information. That's completely understandable that you, you would be excited at that news. But did you find out on Twitter or did somebody call you? <laughs> No, can you imagine? I've known about it for quite a while. Um, I've been working on it in secret, so um, I can't really talk about any of it really properly, but you can imagine what that's been like to keep in. So the skills I learned at Newsnight in being discreet and not letting information out <laughs> have been extremely helpful over this past period, Claire. Um, it's so intriguing, the story about how you came to the point where this interview was agreed, because the first contact that came from his office had nothing to do with what this interview interview eventually was about? Absolutely, absolutely nothing. So a year prior to the interview that um, I know you would have seen and enjoyed or put your hands up to your face for yeah, more was like my that. first contact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look through your eyes. Was it just an innocuous email from a delightful PR who wanted to introduce me to Pitch at Palace, his former entrepreneurial screen? Um, and that didn't come to anything because they wanted it to be what we call a puff piece, which, as you know, is like a technical term for something that just sort of sucks up to somebody and doesn't have any news content. So I declined. Didn't even tell my boss. I felt, Sam, when I read that, that it was a really strange pitch to make to somebody who was working on Newsnight. Can we come on Newsnight and talk about Prince Andrew's charity initiative and nothing else? I mean, it was a naive assumption that that was ever going to fly with you. I'm not so sure, actually. I have to say, I've seen a diminution in the way that people are steadfast. One of the things about me that you may have noticed from the book is that I'm, it's no conditions 
nothing. It's over if you offer conditions. We just don't do that at Newsnight ever. But I'm not so sure that's the case everywhere else. So it's entirely feasible that that could work with other outlets, but definitely not with us. Okay. so how did they respond then when you said that's not going to happen? Well, I literally put the sign off that you always put as a negotiator, which is, you know, do let me know if the situation changes 999 times out of a thousand. You never hear from them again. But six months later, I heard from them again and they literally invited me to the palace to discuss a wider interview with his chief of staff, Amanda Thirst, now infamous, sadly, for the wrong reasons. Um, And that was six months before this interview happened. And again, I barely told my boss I went because I thought it was a road to nowhere. What was that meeting like? It was extraordinary. She was, I understand now the public view of her, but I have to say she was professionalism personified, extremely bright, very straight talking, no jokes, no humour on my side. I negotiate differently with each individual. And it was a very, obviously, intimidating proposition to walk in there. She was very direct with me. We talked for about two hours and we started from a position of what we would call the puff piece, as we've discussed. And we got to a position where I'd negotiated onto the table him commenting about Brexit. Seems a bit mad now thinking about that, but at the time, hugely important. (laughs) And you, so, you you took some photographs of your feet on the royal carpet when you oh, were in the waiting area. Forgive me. I'm sure you're far too classy, but they left me alone no, with not my really. phone. You're not too classy. I'm so pleased you said that. Thank you so much. I may have taken a couple of selfies. I can't confirm or deny, but my mum has seen them and she really enjoyed them. So my tackiness bore fruit. So then you had that meeting. Did you go back then to the office and explain to the people that you work with where you were at at that point? Exactly. And where we were at is that Amanda had been extremely reasonable. We'd got to a very good position, but this was before Epstein died, remember, before he was arrested, before it became really the Maxwell and Epstein show, there was one red line and we don't do red lines. So I knew my boss would decline, but it was painful to see. So she was still saying at that point, you cannot ask Prince Andrew about Jeffrey Epstein. That's not happening. Yeah, it was like a last comment just when I thought I'd made it. It was 99% of the way there. I was feeling pretty good about myself. I thought my boss would be pretty pleased. We'd never interviewed a member of the royal family. You know, it was quite a big deal. But at that stage, it probably would have been, to be frank with you, a last question because he hadn't been arrested. It wasn't the way that it was. And so... We had to decline it, of course. So with regret, um, I told Amanda that we couldn't do the interview and hope to work with her again in the future. So what happened next? Well, it's a bit like a line between being a really kind of like difficult pain in the bottom. I hope we can say bottom. That's okay, isn't it? That's fine. And being extremely professional. So every time a little bit of news dropped about the interview, I had that in. I had that trust with her. We had mutual respect. She was very plain dealing. And every time the story moved, I would message, I would call, I would email, agree to see me again. We, we just lost oh, your line sorry. there. No, that's fine. That's fine. It's absolutely perfect now. So eventually, as the story progressed, you were keeping in touch with her, keeping her on side, if you like, and she agreed then to see you. Yes. Later in the year, she agreed to see me. I was meant to be on holiday. I bring up my kid on my own. It was I worked part time. I was going on a spa day. First time in five years. But you'll be pleased to hear I cancelled it. And I went with Emily Maitlis to Buckingham Palace. We're now in October, November time. So all those months later, we turned up together to meet Amanda again. Okay, and but it wasn't just Amanda, was it? That time it was. We had a meeting, the three of us, and then we resolved to meet again if Prince Andrew was amenable. And then we heard that we were invited back to the palace for a meeting face-to-face with Prince Andrew 
and his advisor. And we also took our deputy editor, Stuart McLean, who ended up being the executive editor. So this was, this was the big meeting then where you were meeting Prince Andrew for the first time with Emily Maitlis, the deputy editor of Newsnight was there as well. And he walked into the room and did he, did he say at, at one point, I need to bring somebody else in here with me? Yes, exactly. We're just about to meet him. Obviously, you know, you're trepidatious. You can tell I'm quite a confident human, but nonetheless, it was a bit intimidating. And then he comes around the corner and he goes, I hope you don't mind. I brought someone with me. Now, I'm a criminal defence lawyer by trade. And my assumption was lawyer, this is going to be closed down. It's all over. But instead, Princess Beatrice. Ah, so she came in and sat down beside him. And then did he give you those lines that we just heard in that clip there? Did he tell you all of what he was going to say during the interview, the draw, the jaw dropping bits that shocked the world? Yes, we heard those on the Monday. Now, what usually happens, Claire, you'll know this from your own producers, is I have what I call the phone briefing nightmare. Usually what happens as a producer, you speak to them in the negotiation. They tell you all kinds of amazing things. And then the second they get on set, they clam up and they behave like an automaton. Mm -hmm. So I still never really believe that that would be said on camera. But yes, we heard it six days before the nation on the Monday, face to face. I was maybe three or four feet from him when he told us those two things. I was really surprised when I read that you said that his, you told him to his face what his nicknames were. I did. How did, did. you react to that? Well, these are always calculated risks. For me as a negotiator, the thing is about trust. I speak truth to power. Everyone knows of me that there's no BS. And you have to create an immediate trust and connection. And the only way to do that is to be authentic. And so I told him his two names. We'll remember, Air Mars Andy, Randy Andy. And I told him that the latter was not useful to his current predicament. Now, as you can imagine, the oxygen went out of the room. No doubt Emily probably wanted to kick me under the table, understandably. The deputy editor looked aghast. And then a second silence and then his laughter. And I knew in that moment that that was probably going to be a real deal breaker because he understood that I don't do BS. Now, at that point, he hadn't yet agreed to do the interview because he had to run it by somebody else. Well, at the end of this negotiation, which obviously was extremely intense a couple of hours, he said a line that will stay with me forever. He said this, well, now we better go and speak to mum. And in my brain, I'm thinking, why does a 59-year-old man need to speak to his mother? And then, of course, it connects. Oh, my God, that's the queen of our nation, the monarch. Extraordinary. And so my jaw dropped. And I don't know whether that meeting factually happened, but you can imagine what it was like hearing that. It was quite an extraordinary moment. Did you want to laugh? (sighs) So many times I have all kinds of ways to stop myself from laughing, you know, because you really do have to. As a producer, you're going to get sacked if you laugh during the interview of the decade. Mm. So looking down at the floor, no eye contact, digging fingers into my hand, um, that low breathing, those are the things that stop you from laughing because it's hard not to sometimes, I'll be frank. You couldn't have predicted how the conversation was going to go with mum and you didn't know whether you were going to get this interview. When did you find out that they were ready to go ahead? Less than 24 hours after that final negotiation, the longest 24 hours of my life. Um, You can imagine how we all felt when we heard a mixture of trepidation, excitement, fear, frenzy of activity because we only had two days to get it done. Okay, two that, days. That, that's not long to prepare for something like that. That is not. And that's when our editor stepped into action. She stayed out of it in a really brilliant way because she was the same one in the room. Esme Ren is her name. She's now at Channel 4 News. And she then prepared 
uh, with Emily relentlessly for that 48 hours and, and some others involved too. But she was the one left with a cool head because we had certainly lost ours, as you can imagine. So take us then, uh, Sam, to the day of the interview. Yes, that's on the Thursday. We arrive at Buckingham Palace. Everyone's under NDAs because we weren't able to tell anybody about this because had it leaked in any way, in the modern age, it's impossible to keep things secret, then they would have they would have spiked the interview. Sam McAllister from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, a fascinating insight into one of the most well-known battlefields in history, Waterloo. We're going to Belgium next, half an hour's drive south of Brussels to Waterloo, the site of the defeat of French Emperor Napoleon in 1815 by the Duke of Wellington-led British forces and a dig at the site of the main British field hospital at the battlefield where a human skeleton has been found. It's only the second one to be found there in modern times, even though thousands of people were killed there. They were found by people working with a charity called Waterloo Uncovered. One of their volunteers, Peter Malloy, is with us now. Uh, Good morning, Peter. Thanks for taking our call. Uh, Tell us about what was found. Good morning, Gavin. How are you? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really exciting uh, fortnight here in Belgium. So briefly, what, what's been discovered there at Mont Saint-Jean, which, which, as you say, served as a field hospital during the battle, um, is what looks to be quite a large ditch, which was used for battlefield clearance in the aftermath of the battle. So as part of the excavations over the last 10 days or so, we have now uncovered uh, a full set of human remains uh, and as well as that, various other items of debris from the battle buried alongside this, uh, as well as horses uh, and mules. So it's a really, really incredible discovery. I mean, as you say, this is only really the second time that, that a complete set of human remains have been uncovered from this battlefield. Why have so few skeletons been found there? Where did all the bodies go? Well, this is one of the the, the sort of enduring mysteries, um, because obviously we know that at nightfall on on the 18th of June, 1815, unfortunately, uh, tens of thousands of of people and animals were were dead in these fields around Waterloo or or were mortally injured. So that question as to what happened uh, has has, has been one that's, that's sort of endured ever since. The general supposition is that some of those remains um, may well have been burnt in the days immediately following the battle, with the remainder concentrated into mass graves. The difficulty is that up until uh, up, up until now, we have never found any evidence of any of those mass graves. One argument is that potentially, and it's, it's, it's a little bit of a grim thing to reflect on, but that maybe later on in the 19th century, some of those mass graves were, were broken open and the bodies were removed to be converted into fertiliser, believe it or not. What is Waterloo uncovered and how did you get involved, Peter? So Waterloo Uncovered is is quite a unique charity, quite a unique project. It, it, it really does two things simultaneously. The first of those is obviously coming out here each year to the battlefield of Waterloo. This has been going on since 2015 to carry out battlefield archaeology. Um, and even in that relatively short space of time, the charity has done incredible work uh, in terms of advancing our knowledge of, of what happened here that day. But the second thing it does, um, and the really unique thing about the project parallel to this, is that most of the people actually doing that archaeology aren't professional archaeologists. They are what we call VSMP, so veterans uh, or serving military personnel. So these are people who are in the process of recovery either from physical or or psychological or in some cases a combination of both uh, injuries as a result of their military service. And they're coming out here to Belgium to take part in this project uh, as part of a process of recovery. It's a therapeutic project. 
So I've been involved with the charity now for the last four years as a volunteer and it really is just the most incredible thing. Peter Malloy, Waterloo Uncovered, talking to Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Tara Maria Lovett was talking about the beauty of the telegram and her many talents. The real passion is uh, the playwriting and I would dearly love to be doing that full time. Yes. But um, I also, my original qualification is as a vet and I actually teach animal care now part time in Dunleary Further Education Institute. So that's the kind of day gig. And then I also, um, I'm a psychotherapist also, so I have a very small practice up in Cavan. So I'm Cavan-based. You're Cavan-based, you're hanging around Dunleary the odd time doing some great work there and then you're writing plays in the middle of it all. You're, you're, so it's a, a multifaceted background. In, in, in It is, it is, absolutely. And I mean, enjoy every bit of it, but the plays in the theatre, that's really that's where the passion. That's, that's where the heart lies. And you history, know? you love your history too, don't you? I love my history, so... Um, the idea around uh, what's going on with what I'm looking for from you today, Ryan, yes. is I um, came to Kerry last summer and I went out to Valencia to the transatlantic cable station and I really just got fascinated and I started thinking, you know, telegrams, what kind of messages did people send? What kind of messages did people receive? What's going on with it? And I suppose thinking about, you know, today with Twitter, everything is so public. Yes. But back in the day, the telegram was so intensely private and they're both kind of short, you know, short number of characters. Because well, telegrams back in the day were really expensive to send. Let's, so let, let's talk about that for a second because um, telegrams to me are, you know, George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life getting a telegram from Harry who's not coming back to Bedford Falls and he's reading out going, you know, no, uh, you know, hi George, it's, it's Harry, stop. Uh, still on holidays, stop. stop. Never coming back, yeah. stop. Your life is about to stop, stop. Um, it's that sort of thing, isn't it? That's a yeah, telegram. I, that's a telegram and I suppose there's something wonderfully urgent and kind of, I suppose you could say, very dram- from a theatre point of view, very dramatic about them because people would have originally it was only wealthy people were able to send them because it was very expensive. You paid per letter image uh, initially and then per word as it got a little bit cheaper. But so everything was very condensed, you know, like you really had to get your message across and like, and only very important things obviously were communicated that way. But then as time went on, it was kind of, you know, births, marriages, deaths. But I'm just really interested in both, I suppose, telegrams, but also in the people who did the, the sending and receiving the telegram operators. What kind of work that was? As a bit of background, it, 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 August eighteen fifty eight, the first public and official transatlantic message was sent via cable across the Atlantic from Valencia, Queen Victoria, to U.S. President James Buchanan. So there's a strong Irish connection to the technology, if you like. Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean Valencia was, you know, a, a key hub and. In the, like, if you actually go down to Valencia, you can actually see the cable. Like, you can actually touch. They have sections of the cable Amazing. on display. Absolutely fantastic. But there were so many attempts to make that connection between Valencia and a place called Hearts Content in Newfoundland to get that cable going. I mean, talk about don't give up three attempts, four attempts yes. to get, get the whole thing working. But then it was like super important hub for communication and obviously then when we come on to our own period of revolution 1916 the telegram was very important and obviously during the wars it was also very important okay so it's 
it's really, I suppose, from a playwright's point of view, it's a very rich field theatrically to look at that. Um, especially when I feel now that we've kind of, in a way, gone back to it now with Twitter. So you're, you, yeah, exactly. I mean, if somebody just joined into our conversation, they'd say, why is that woman on the radio talking about Twitter? It's not, of course, it's, it's just the original Twitter in many respects. Telegram. Exactly. So what, what can we do for you today? You're writing a play. You, like, have you written the half of it? Or are you, where are you? No, I'm, I mean, I suppose I'm, I, I was really lucky to get Arts Council funding. So right. grateful um, for, to help me do the research and also to help me um, have a dramaturge, which is an important part of the process. I have a wonderful yeah. dramaturge called Pamela McQueen. Um, to help me kind of develop the script. So, I mean, I'm at the early stage, but I would hope that I'd have a script ready by the end of September. Yeah. Um, and really what I would love is to get a little bit of oral history. So I would love to talk to some um, telegram operators. So these would have been the people doing the kind of sending and receiving of telegrams in post offices all over the country. And I, I suppose I would just hope that there maybe are people out there who did that work. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, who'd, it, be, who'd be happy to talk to me. Just to get a flavour. Sometimes, Ryan, a play can come from, you know, the heart of a play can come from a sentence, a phrase, an image, just something like that. So there could just be something in a conversation that will really be integral to the piece of work and the final analysis. And the telegram phased out in the 1980s. Obviously, when phone calls and that, everything became cheaper. They they kind of faded out. But there was always something. Anybody I've spoken to has said, oh, yes, going to a wedding, getting a telegram at a wedding. You know, the way they'd read them out. Auntie Mary in Boston says hi and happy day and all of that. But there there were some wonderful um, coded messages sent back in the day when I was doing my research. Very interesting um, telegram operator in Khmer who sent a message to Valencia that then went on to the US to to let them know in the US the 1916 rising was happening, get a message to John DeVoy and, and the message was coded. So what was sent was mother's operation was successful. Wow, that's amazing. So it's like brilliant, like that's pure theatre. That's pure theory. Yeah. You're so right. Yeah. I mean, that that's yeah. uh, that's you're into sort of the enigma, enigma code in some ways. I mean, it's just yeah, great. Brilliant. Mother's brilliant. operation was successful. Yeah, was successful. So they knew in that. in New York. The rising is on. It's all go here, lads. You, you want know, people. Breathe. You want people who who were kind of the ones typing those out and exactly. sending them along the line. Maybe some engineers yeah. who worked on the maintenance of it. I've I've Beautiful. had this vague memory of being in in, in uh, Wicklow Jail, one of my favourite places to visit on a tour. And there's a whole thing about putting the lines underneath the sea to get them. Oh, put, does that make sense? Unbelievable. Yeah, it's I know. Like I mean, when I was down in Valencia, it's all of this stuff about the ships and they each have part of the cable and they're trying yes. to join the cable together and all that. Like what a feat stuff. of engineering. I mean, it's extraordinary. Unbelievable. And then there was something absolutely fascinating uh, in Valencia. When I was looking through the museum, there's this little silver thimble. Yeah. You know, like a thimble that yeah, ladies yeah, wear yeah. For, for, you know, stitching. Sewing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the thimble was to set up a little tiny battery to get an electric current so they could test the cable oh, man, to see amazing. would the current travel from Ireland to America. Really? I mean, and the thimble is to be had. It's down there like it's that's, that's great. So that's, I mean, Valencia played such an important role in this story and you're setting your story, your play in Kerry, aren't you? Well, yeah, I would say the play would be set in Kerry and, and what I would see happening would be that, I suppose it's about linking the past and the present. So there will be echoes of the telegram coming through to the present time. So the play will be set in two time periods, probably around 
maybe War of Independence time, possibly. And then, obviously, in the modern uh, time as well. So there'll be echoes. Tara Maria Lovett from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the live line with Katie Hannan, GAA supporter John Arnold was not in good form. Bewitched, bothered and bewildered. Yeah, today's Thursday, the, the Thursday before the All-Ireland holding final. Before COVID, this would be, we'd be talking to this would be early September. Um, obviously, the GMA decision with this split-season model there, some years back it was laid with COVID to bring the All-Ireland finals forward. So now we've the All-Ireland holding final next Sunday in the middle of July and I just... I, I'm, I'm, I, like I said in the letter, I'm, I'm, I'm sad and I'm angry. I, I'm sad that the, what was the major sporting, um, the major sporting fixture in the whole of Ireland, you know, for the whole year, in, in the first Sunday in September for the hurling and the third Sunday in September for football, and that's the way it was with the last 40, 50, 60, nearly 100 years as well for September, and now it's been literally thrown back into July and I know all the circumstances I know all about the split season I know Club G and and County but I just think I'm so sad that it's next Sunday now it's taking part one match above in Cork Park standalone and I'm not giving out about the media but all the media coverage this week this is Thursday I've heard precious little I've heard them all about the hurling final yet all this week it's the um, the, the golf in St Andrews which is huge major uh, the European Women's Soccer Championship and the third test between Ireland and New Zealand and Ireland are trying to win a test series in New Zealand for the first time. So all those things have shoved the All-Ireland final completely into the background and I'm not blaming Ian off to you or anything. No, but it's, but I mean, it's just, yeah, it's what's on now. Yeah, and, and obviously in, in August and September, the GA really kind of could own that, that time because there wasn't an awful lot Everything else was just getting going, whereas the GA would be coming to the, obviously, for both the hurling and the football, you'd be uh, yeah, coming and, to the and, peak, and, the, <coughs> the crescendo of the season. Yeah, they said for the two months of August and September. And and, and again, it's just that other sports were kind of either way in the office starting, whereas now so we've had um, the Round Robin series in Munster and Leinster there in the months of April and May, when the main talk still in the media at that stage was fair play to them, was it Liverpool or City was going to win the Premiership? That's, that was their season, that was always their season. And we always, in fairness to the media, to the printed media, to the radio, television stations, everything, we always literally had August and September. I won't say to ourselves, but we were, we were kind of the number one spot, especially in the month of September. And what makes me really angry then is when you think of the month of September and you think of children going back to school in late August and for maybe it was only a week in September for the hurling and three weeks for the football. The joy and the pleasure that national schools this week should be enduring are having in, in Offaly and Tipperary if they're the minor final and, and Limerick and Kilkenny kids going in having Jersey days talking about it, singing the songs wearing the green, white and gold of Offaly or the blue and gold of Tipperary, the green, white and Limerick and, um, and coming in in the colours and I know, I know that feeling, that excitement and of course, you know, if you're from uh, if you're from Kerry like myself uh, September was always a very special month especially from Listowel like, 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 yeah, uh, like yeah, I, I mean, was because I, I like, I you, you'd win the All-Ireland, John and then you'd go to the, the races for the yeah, week afterwards to celebrate it, yeah, <laughs> And I mean after that you, you probably go to the Plowing Championship and like that's all been thrown away and look 
I understand there was um, a problem. The problem that was there over the last number of years is that club fixtures for club players all over the country <coughs> were being postponed but back a week after a draw, replay in the inter-county. So, no, but, and there was a problem there. I'm not denying there was a problem. Of course there was a problem. But the solution is way worse because what we have now is you have a split season now where inter-county players get to play with their counties alone, not with their clubs, alone from January, February, March, April, May, and June and July, if they get to Ireland, then the club season starts in late July or August, and then in August, September, October. And it's only August, September, and October. You have 12 weeks for the club season now, only 12 weeks. Why? Because the winners then of the club championships in all the counties must be ready to play in the Munster Championship, Linster Provincial Championships. Long ago, they were all heading towards a deadline of Patrick's Day, the club finals. Again, mm. the J, in their own wisdom, have that brought that forward to January. They were talking about bringing it to December. And people said in, but weren't the players under pressure? So the players that are lucky enough to play in their county are under even more pressure now because they're literally training from December with their counties for six or seven months, and that's over then, and they go straight to the clubs. So those players that are lucky enough to play with with inter-county teams are literally going to be playing for nine months a year now. They talk then about player burnout, and they talk about that. But, I mean, what really makes me sad is here we are on a glorious day in July, and to think, Katie, that for the last the month of May, the month of June, and now we're heading to the end of July, we've had no club championships. We've had no club championships. The summer time when J matches should be played, it's bright till 10 o'clock at night, young fellas can be down the field, young fellas are off school, and we have decided in our wisdom, the J, that no, that'll be a close season for club championships. But then in August, September and October, young fellas gone back to school, teenagers gone back to college, kids won't be able to go down to the pitch. Dark at 6 o'clock, you'll rush down to training, and that's that's the club season. That's John on the live line with Katie Hannon. And on Morning Ireland, Sinead Hussey was talking to Westmeath GAA footballer Luke Lachlan about his latest victory and his struggle with addiction. And Westmeath's winning of the inaugural Tolchin Cup in Gaelic football on Saturday. They beat Cavan, their first silverware since winning the Leinster title in 2004. And for star forward Luke Lachlan, the journey to Crow Park's success did not come without challenges. Last summer, he had to seek help for alcohol and drug addiction from Coonwira Addiction Services. And in 12 months, with the support of his family and friends, he's turned his life around. Our correspondent Sinead Hussey met up with him this week. Lachlan trying to get into the clear, getting away from the challenges after Moina. Nobody can catch him. Superbly over. Last Saturday's success with Westmead was special for Luke Lachlan. For the 27-year-old, it marked exactly a year in recovery. A year ago, I was in a very bad place. I had to come to terms with an addiction to alcohol and drugs. Um, so basically, my addiction was anything that could take me out of my out of reality. And um, I was ruining my life every time. Just a big button in my chest, self-destruct time and time again. And this was going on for 10 years, you know. Luke Lachlan spent three months in Coomwara last summer dealing with his addictions. It changed my life. I was able to focus on myself for the first time ever. I was able to deal with the problems that I had from when I was a child. I was able to deal with my addiction. I didn't realise I had an addiction, you know, but I can see now that the problems I had, like, just crazy. I could stay off the drink for maybe a month, right, and I could convince myself, i like, right, just get things together. And then I'd do good for a month, and I'd be like, right, here, I need to reward myself now. And I'd be like, right, it won't be, it'll be different this time, I'll go home. 
I could go on the beer for two weeks or go missing for two weeks and missing from work. And I was so consumed about what other people thought, about my image. I was so insecure about the way I looked, you know. And I, I genuinely got to the stage where I just hated everything about myself. So when I was drinking and doing drugs, I was becoming someone else. But ultimately, that person I was becoming was killing me, was killing everything about myself, my reputation, my family life, you know. That person was just ruining my life and I needed to get away from it big time, you know. The 27-year-old credits fitness as key in his recovery. He said football, as well as the people at his local gym, Wolfhound Fitness, helped keep him focused. So when I came out of Kumira, I, was, I got uh, time off work for a long time and I spent so much time in here. And not just training, uh, yeah, I spent so much time in Wolfhound here um, with Joe and Katie and they were basically my aftercare. The Westmead team is just such a special group of people, like so close, everyone is so special. And I keep saying that word special because that's what it is. And I'm delighted there that we actually got to win something because it's something to show for the hard work that's been going on the last while, you know. It's picked up here and Luke Lachlan can finish. He's got a point. And that's point why the charge. Westmead footballer is savouring this success. Last Saturday, as the footballers waited for the game to throw in, Luke Lachlan said he was thinking of the many people who had helped him get back on track. This time last year, a video went around to me asleep at the side of a train tracks and like, I was on a bender for two months and in the middle of that two months, like 10 days in bed and then I went drinking again and drugs obviously and another five days in bed. And I just thought about well, all the people that had messaged me just saying that how it made them feel to see me healthy and happy, you know. It's never really about the performance. It was just to see them, you know, see someone a smile on someone's face. And I thought about my mother who I had put through such hardship, you know, a special woman, Una is my mom's name. I put her through such hardship the last 10 years and it's so nice to see a smile on her face, you know. Luke Lachlan talking to Sinead Hussey from Morning Ireland. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.